Welcome to the latest edition of the Revolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast. The topic of today's conversation will be focusing on ROI in cybersecurity. And I am joined by an esteemed panel of guests today. So let's work around the room and I'll introduce them. So Edward Liebig, Andrew Ginter, and Ted Guatierrez. So Edward, would you first of all be so kind as to give us a brief introduction to yourself and your professional background? Certainly. Hi, I'm Edward Liebig. I'm a uh, about a 43-year ITOT veteran, uh, also a military veteran, U.S. Navy, go Navy. Um, uh, I've been a CISO for multinational firms. I've been managing partner of uh, consulting, MSSP services for two different multinational firms. Um, currently, I'm with Hexagon Corporation, uh, looking at alliance partnerships and building relationships to better secure OT. We are looking strictly in the OT environment. So that's that's kind of my five-second rule, five-second <laughs> Great. Thanks, Edward. And over to yourself, Andrew. Sure. Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at uh, Waterfall Security Solutions. Um you know, my background, I did about 10 years developing industrial control system product, high-end product for, you know, the world's biggest pipelines and, and power grids. Um, I then shifted focus to about, uh, I don't know, seven years developing ITOT integration product. So thereby, you know, connecting a lot of uh, industrial networks to IT networks and to SAP specifically. That was the, the big deal in the late 1990s. Um, connecting all of those networks networks of course uh, contributed to the cybersecurity problems that now plague many industries in a sense i got religion i wound up the chief technology officer at industrial defender building the world's first industrial sem security uh, information and event management system um, and now i'm with waterfall security we work with the world's most secure industrial sites and we find that their perspective is uh, is really different. Uh, they ask different questions. They get different answers because they ask different questions. They look at the problem a little bit differently. So this is, uh, that's my background. Right. And last but certainly not least, over to yourself, Ted. Hey, good morning and good afternoon to everybody. My name is Ted Gutierrez. Uh, I'm an army veteran calling out of Houston, Texas, and I'm the CEO of a software as a service company that sits at the intersection of cybersecurity and industrial uh, sectors called Security Gate. Uh, I've been doing that for the better part of a decade, um, and I decided to build essentially the product that I that I wish I had had when I was an auditor uh, for a very large oil and gas firm. Uh, one of the challenges that I continually had as I was auditing to known standards like NIST and, and ISO was that asset owners in industrial environments at the facility level, um, to Andrew's point, they 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 have different uh, perspectives. They they have to ask different questions. They have to apply cyber controls a little bit differently. So um, for the better part of about 20 years, I've just been a risk manager, traveled to, to hundreds of sites globally, and, and uh, really excited to speak with you today. Um, the topic itself is, is near and dear to me. Um, I run a series called The Business of Cyber that talks about the financial and the business implications of our cybersecurity investments, specifically for industrial environments. And so this notion of ROI, I think, is a really important uh, topic because, uh, as we'll maybe you know dive into in this uh, in this podcast, is I think there's a lot of competing views and competing uh, 
efforts for a limited number of resources out there. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak today as, as I think this is a really healthy topic for asset owners and implementers alike. Thanks, Ted. And staying with you for a second, could you give us, start with a high level overview, a definition of ROI as it pertains to cybersecurity and cyber investment? So so I get the toughest question first, huh? That's okay. <laughs> That's Lucky. okay. Well, I think I, I will offer my perspective and then I think the other gentleman might might be able to to offer. When you think about ROI, uh, and I can say this as a as a CEO of a tech company that's that works with investors, right? You know, ROI is return on investment. We put a certain dollar amount into a certain hypothesis, idea, initiative, maybe even a program. To the financial world, ROI is what are the dollars that I get back? I think that's really challenging to do in risk management. Risk management across safety, across uh, security, across cyber. And as you dive into cyber, you even think about operational uh, versus informational. So I think in the world of just laser focusing on just cyber security, I don't, I don't think it's as easy to calculate ROI as a pure dollar amount. I think that there is a very necessary step that savvy security and risk management leaders have to have to, to do, whether mathematically or, or intuition-based, is they have to connect some element of a business outcome to their activities. That extra step is gonna tie an encryption strategy or a training strategy uh, program or some sort of asset inventory or a series of services aimed at beefing up policies and procedures, if you can effectively tie the outcome of the future state of those particular cyber controls to an enhanced business resiliency or a minimized non-productive time for a given organization, I think the CISO or the, or the, or the CIO is well positioned to keep getting those resources because they're able to say, this is the, the money that we took. This is the energy that we took. This is the time that we took. We deployed it against these controls. And now our business is operating better, faster, stronger, easier, safer. And that is a very, um, it's a tough challenge for security and risk management leaders. And I think it changes by sector. So in closing, I think ROI of a financial metric is really hard to achieve. I think that if you're able to tie some financial metrics to a business outcome, I think today's landscape of security is intricately tied to business operations, and it falls upon those security and risk management leaders to, to make that that calculation at a, at its most rudimentary level all the time. Right, and as I yeah, as you mentioned there, I think there's a few themes going and i guess over to yourself edward if you could why is it important for us to discuss roi given what ted said that it is very complex you know you're you're tying in business outcomes you're incorporating financial metrics how does this help bridge the gap between security teams and asset owners and maybe i'm missing the picture why is roi important for the security team to to, to understand i think uh you know in, in my in my view of the world in, in my experience i've seen that trying to measure roi based on security um parameters only and using the business outcomes from security to try to justify just security is missing the mark because i don't believe the technology itself 
is security, nor is uh, security made up just of technology, right? We all know that you've got people in process in there. What do you measure across the organization uh, that would actually add to the ROI story and give you the value of the tool itself? Because you may be getting value in other areas. You put the right security tool in, maybe you get operational uplift. Maybe you, you, you've got your time in motions uh, goes goes down. You're, you're de- reducing your your uh, your your manpower, your labor force. Those types of measurements add to the value of that particular tool uh, in addition to cybersecurity. So to Ted's point, it's very complex. But I really look for the organizational value is what I keep my eye on. Sure. So it's not just about the technology specifically and using ROI to justify the investment in that piece of software or that piece of technology. It's very much looking at kind of more holistically than Right. How does that build in the whole security organization? Because if you're going to try to say justify security, I don't think you can do it at the individual component level because it's a, it's a dance between technology, people, and process. I mean, that's that's that is security. What you've got represented here is in the OT environment. You got Ted at the edge. You got me at the deep assets, and you got Andy in the transmission. So that's that's all parts and pieces. But just by those individually doesn't really give you a picture of the overall security program. And that's where I keep my eye on as a CISO. Sure. That makes sense. And you've both touched on so far that it is so complex understanding ROI. Over to yourself, Andrew, could you give us an idea of how ROI means different things in different industries and different organizations according to scale, according to, you know, what sort of businesses they are. Could you you, you touch on that for us? Definitely. Um, you know, I I agree and I, I, I disagree, uh, especially with Ted. Um, I think there are industries where uh, modeling ROI strictly as dollars um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, um, think, you know, consumer goods manufacturing, a toaster factory. I mean, I've never been in a toaster factory, but my understanding is that, you know, these factories have, I don't know, a thousand machines, most of which have a lot of moving parts. You know, where is the enemy of moving parts? Um, these machines need to be repaired. What are the safety risks in these machi- in these in these factories? The, the biggest one is that when a technician has to crawl into a machine to fix a part that's been worn out, it's that the machine is going to, you know, cut his arm off or cut his head off or hers as the case may be um and so what you do is you know my understanding is that you you put mechanical interlocks on these things you uh push a pin into the gears with a lever you lock the lever you put the key in your pocket and now it's safe to call into the machine you've taken safety off the table the only consequence that's left is business consequence you know if the, the the whole factory goes down for a week or two because of a ransomware attack well you have to schedule extra shifts to make up the lost production. Um, you know, you your insurance covers it because it's, you know, a $10 million loss and this is the kind of insurance that you can buy. It is all dollars and cents. You do as much cybersecurity as your insurance company demands. You know, you take some reasonable steps and off you go. But, you know, to Ted's point, on the other side of the coin, I agree completely. In other industries, it's a different animal. If we're talking you know rail switching what's the worst case consequence on a on a rail a passenger rail network worst case consequence is a mass casualty event you cannot restore human lives and damaged equipment from backups it doesn't work so um you know what's the roi for a safety system you know that's not that's not the question people ask people ask what is the you know what is a what if there's a lawsuit if we're called up in court 
to you know justify our actions because there's been casualties. The question the judge is going to ask us um, is, you know, do you care? Did you do what any reasonable person would do in this circumstance? Uh, you know, no matter the cost, you have to do reasonable things. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, I, I think the, the answer is it depends. And it depends a lot on the industry. It depends on the consequences. Um, safety consequences, are there consequences for society if a critical infrastructure is, is interrupted? Are there consequences for the business? Business consequences that you can buy insurance for, the nature of the consequence determines the applicability of, of an ROI calculation. So I think that's something that's really important. I kind of realized as looking back at when I was introducing the the, the topic of the podcast, I should have, you know, made a, a bigger effort in emphasizing that we're looking specifically at OT here. And I think one of the themes that I'm sure is already emerged and will be a common theme here is safety. That's not necessarily such an issue on the IT side of things because there's not that threat to life. And I think particularly in 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 the latter example where there is a threat to life, how do you quantify that and how does that feed into the ROI calculation that makes it much harder for those industries that are working with you know big machinery where where attacks and hacks could you know pose real threats there so we've looked at how in different industries roi means different things i think even if we if we now kind of telescope in looking at within an industry ted if hypothetically speaking here if you've got a cyber cyber architect and you've got a cfo in the in the room working for the same organization same business would they arrive at the same kind of calculations for ROI or how would their sort of opinions and views differ, do you think? That's a great question. And I think it's what a lot of security and risk management leaders are challenged with today, right? You have your implementation team, your highly technical team really understands the nuts and bolts of what has to happen on the shop floor. Uh, and there's not enough of those people, right? Then you flip to the other side of the coin, which is a non-technical player who's becoming increasingly involved uh, at the at the at, at the cyber conversation or at the cyber level. You see what's happening with CISA with their reporting requirements. You see what's happening with the SEC with their reporting requirements for public boards. Um, we know that the CFO and the surrounding folks are, are starting to become more involved in cyber. So I think your question is great. Um, before I answer it, I think I'll go back to your previous comment, which I found very um, appropriate. As we as we look at the operational technology side of the house, um, whether it's getting oil out of the ground or, to Andrew's point, toasters out of the out of the manufacturing facility, how do you put a number on safety? How do you put a number on physical security? How do you put a number on? I think it's easier to put a number on the number of toasters that were deployed out. I think it's easier to put a number of the number of barrels of oil out. And so I I would link to what I've seen work very well in uh, the oil and gas industry in particular. Safety is a is is really a a, a net zero gain, right? So there are certain amount of investments that a given company is ready and willing to make to have zero safety incidents. I challenge constantly the industry to say, what would we have to do to have a zero cyber incident? We could have cyber events, but what if we wanted zero cyber incidents, what would we have to put in place? Oil and gas has done a very effective job at having a zero tolerance policy for safety issues. And what that does is it creates a very clear end state for the whole company to aim towards. If it's defined very well that a safety incident is any loss of 
time to operations to care for someone that just got hurt. You could do the exact same for cybersecurity. So the other way that safety implications are tied is with non-productive time. If you have to shut down the operations because of a safety incident, well, you could apply the same sort of mathematics. If you have to shut down operations at that facility, that plant, that manufacturer, that rig, that vessel, then because of a cyber incident, right? Then that starts to drive your mathematical equation. So I just wanted to comment on that. I'm sure that the team has other comments on that too. Um, I think a CFO talking to, let's say, uh, uh, an electric technician on a, on, you know, would they come to the same end state? I think that the CFO wants to talk about risk, right? And risk is a really loaded word. Hey, are we more risky than we were yesterday? Hey, is there a lower risk than there was yesterday? Whereas I think the analyst level person is is really thinking about the security that is gained or lost by the closure of controls. Okay. I think the the analyst is saying, if we implement that particular control, or if we fix these vulnerabilities, that's going to kind of seal up that hole. And then that individual is already thinking about the next control they need to go focus on. Whereas the the board or the CFO is talking about, well, how risky are we? Are we more compliant? Are we, are we better than our peers? And so I think they're always going to be on opposite ends, Dave. And I think that's healthy for an organization. One's focused on strategic risk management. One is focused on technical control closures, which brings my biggest point that I think I would make as it relates to any sort of calculation. The folks in the middle are the ones with the toughest job that have to translate up and down the chain of command effectively. Um, and I think that's where this conversation really leads is how do you make sense of the technical world to the risk folks? And how do you make, and how do you get enough budget from the risk folks to take downstream? I don't know what the, uh, the group's comments are, but, uh, I think that's where I would, I, I would probably answer on that question. Thank you. And yeah, I'd like to open that up to, 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 to you guys, to Edward and Andrew, what are your thoughts? Well, I'll start Ted. I, I, I agree with what you said on that and, and the communication part. Um, is one of the key pieces that I think that, that that gets lost in the discussion when you start talking about cyber in OT. If we look at a cyber event in OT, uh, a lot of times it manifests itself as a, a piece of gear just drops offline uh, in, or a system failure. Um, it manifests itself in a, in a physical event, but you have to be able to have the visibility into the assets, not that just that we're affected, but the ones connected to it and and that that feed to it. You have to have that visibility. So really, to be able to manage risk, visibility is key. You've got to see all your assets, know where they are, and understand um, the criticality in your consequence. Back to Andy's statement about looking at the consequences and the varying consequences based on what you're doing. That's That, that variation is the same in each individual plant. Within the plant, within the control loops themselves, they might carry different risk ratings because of the process they support. Therefore, that just like uh, ju that device that's just like this other device in the plant will carry different risk scores based on based on operations. Um, so I think that, that that's very important to, to look at your visibility and are you seeing all your assets? Because if you blend the IT and OT together, your overall enterprise risk is going to be skewed if you don't see all your OT assets. And on the other side of that, on the communication piece that Ted mentioned, being able to see the activities and the processes and the follow-up um, is going to really be key to document. 
Um, a lot of times in the OT environment, you send an engineer out and they start troubleshooting and doing their thing and and not really documenting the actual process. So if you can choose tools and, and management techniques that capture that both for IT and OT and then move that to a location to aggregate, that's how you're going to uh, be able to survive the litigious situation. Did you do all the right things and can you prove it? That, that paper trail of the workflow of the security activities in those different environments is a key piece of data you need to keep. Um, so that I think that's that's where my concerns would be. Yeah, so I agree with uh, with Edward um, in the sense that uh, you you have to monitor. We can only optimize what we monitor. We can only optimize what we have data for. And if we most of us do want to optimize our security posture, and so we have to get the data but um you know to to ted's point um about about the uh you know the ry for safety let me come back to that for a moment i've been working a lot with the uh there's a community of interest um that idaho national labs has set up for cyber informed engineering uh, i recommend it um and, and they're looking at cybersecurity. yes monitoring yes but they're also looking what's new in this initiative is they're looking at engineering grade protections uh, for industrial operations for cybersecurity, or rather engineering grade protection, engineering grade protection against cyber risk, not necessarily cybersecurity. In the safety world, you know, the mechanical interlock, the, uh, the pin into the gears in the toaster factory is an engineering grade protection. It doesn't matter, you know, what happens in the physical process. It doesn't matter what happens in the cyber world. The pin is in the gears. The machine isn't going to move. So, you know, overpressure valves on boilers, um, overpressure valves on, on catalytic crackers and refineries, flare stacks, these are all engineering grade mitigations for physical risk due to a, a variety of threats, you know, ranging from earthquakes to, you know, who, you know, corrosion to who knows what, including cyber. So this, this engineering grade, you know, is is uh, sort of one concept that 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 fits into that. One of the differences between the the IT approach and the OT approach is that the OT approach is often driven by engineers, and they have a, a responsibility, a professional responsibility to protect public safety and worker safety with engineering grade protections against all threats, including cyber threats. And this is what, sort of what's what's new. People have been doing this sporadically in the engineering space, but the the CIE initiative is is. Uh, capturing this in sort of a single body of knowledge, capturing stuff that people have been doing sporadically and saying, we need to start applying this knowledge systematically. But it's it's deeper than that. It's not just safety. In critical infrastructures, there's reliability. If the lights go out in the Northeast for 100 million people for three days, we're in trouble. Okay, as a society, we're going to suffer casualties. It's it, This is very bad. Um, and the thing about safety mitigations is what, what does a safety system do if a an unsafe condition is discovered it shuts the process down which is not what we want you know we can't afford to shut down our power plants and our pipelines um and so engineering grade protections are being applied in the reliability space as well and you know the the criticality of the network really determines the the protections the engineering grade protections are going to be alien to the it practitioner the it protections are going to seem almost irrelevant to the engineering practitioner. The, you know, the, the truth is in the middle. They have to come together. We need all of these protections. Um, and when we're, you know, coming back to the question of ROI, um, when we start applying engineering grade 
protections. Net, you know, network engineering is is an example of a, 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 an approach to protect reliability. Network engineering is engineering grade protection for networks. Prevent the bad guys getting in in the first place, almost completely. The way that you know an overpressure valve prevents a, an explosion, almost completely. Um, the uh, you know once we start engineering the networks a little bit differently, once we start controlling the flow of information because we need to control the flow of attacks that are embedded in the information. Once we start controlling the information flow, we're going to start getting pushback from the business saying, "Oh, I used to be able to do X with my information, and now I have to jump through hoops to do X. It's costing me money," and we wind up with false economies. Um, Remote access is the classic example. You can write, you know, produce a spreadsheet that that uh, calculates exactly how many to the dollar, how many thousands of dollars we would save at each of our facilities every year if we, you know, enabled or continued our remote access program. And that, you know, the spreadsheet shows the savings very clearly. What it does not show is the increased exposure. It does not show the risk we've taken on. It does not, you know, it, it only shows you half of the equation. So you've got to be really careful with your 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 clever ROI spreadsheets that they're accounting for risk and downside as well as dollar cost savings. Here, here, amen, Andrew. I agree with that. <laughs> and staying on, you know, risk for a second there, as I believe it was Ted mentioned earlier that you've got to have different people. So back to the kind of architect CFO question, saying that, you know, everyone's talking about risk and risk might mean different things to different people. If we're looking specifically at some of the regulatory frameworks that are in place at the moment, even in the relatively short comparatively um, time I've been, you know, recruiting in this space, I've seen the number of standards and frameworks people have to adhere to change. How robust and how comprehensive and suitable do you think they are? I think a common expression or a common thing I, I hear quite a lot, be it on podcasts, be it at talks, is you know compliance doesn't equal security. So with that in mind, what we're trying to comply with, how suitable are they for the for, for, for these actual industries that, that need them? Do the right thing, compliance will come. Has been my mind years look comprehensively about your security controls on both sides it and ot and again not just your technologies but also your people in process so by looking holistically at your organization and doing the right things if you look at the frameworks that you mentioned dave i would say a large percentage of any of the frameworks are applicable to the other frameworks mm. in one form or another because you're doing the right things there's only so much you can do uh, that has been discovered to do. So if you're doing the right things, then it's a then it's a, an exercise in mapping back. Do I comply? And then making small tweaks from there. I, I I don't think this looking at the framework and say I'm going to do this this and this is effective because it may not be in another framework and you may have holes. So you have to look holistically at your program. That's that's how I look at it. Sure. So yep. uh, sorry sorry. Go ahead, Ted. Sorry, Andrew. I was I was gonna let me let me jump in uh, a couple of things. Um, compliance is essential. Um, you know, uh, if we have the world's best security policy and we print it in a binder and we put it in the shelf and it gathers dust, um, it's useless. Okay, we have to, you know, we 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 have to comply. We have to from time to time check if we're complying. Compliance is is, is essential. Standards are all over the place. 
And, uh, you know, one big gap in the standards world right now is uh, these engineering grade protections. Where is a spring-loaded and overpressure valve that will prevent absolutely, or as close to absolutely as engineers can manage, uh, a boiler exploding and killing the technician who's working on it? Where is that valve in the NIST cybersecurity framework? It's not there. Where's manual operations as a fallback in an emergency? It's not there. So that, that there's this that we have just, this is what, why I'm so excited about the, the CIE space. I don't use the word excited very often, but I am because this is something that's been long awaited to fill this gap because what we have is a lot of stuff on cybersecurity, but the, the, the question of addressing cyber risk, cyber threat to physical operations is a different animal than just cybersecurity. There's more to it. But even within the cybersecurity standards, they're, they're across the board. Uh, a great many of them smell very much IT-like, saying, you know, the IT way is the gold standard. I know it's hard to do on the OT space. Do it anyway. Invent a way to do it is, the, is kind of how I interpret those standards. To, you know, other standards that are, you know, really have sort of drifted or moved deliberately towards the the engineering perspective. And they're, 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 they're you know, sort of dipping their toe into the network engineering techniques that we're starting to see defined. Uh, concrete example is ANSI in France, uh, not ANSI in North America, ANSSI, uh, Agence Nationale du Système de Sécurité d'Information uh, in France for critical infrastructures. Um, they've got two volumes to the standard, surprisingly readable. And, you know... Concrete example on the network engineering side, they 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 classify their networks into three classes. The classes have numbers; they're complicated, but I paraphrase them as you know, class three is safety critical, class two is reliability critical, think critical infrastructure, class one is everything else, IT, toaster factories, um, and engineering, network engineering. They, they forbid firewalled connections between safety networks and any any lesser network. Um, if you want to send information out of a safety network, you have to use the unidirectional gateway or just air gap. You can't connect through a firewall. They strongly recommend unidirectional communications from reliability critical, you know, critical infrastructure to business networks. Um, they strongly discourage the word. It, they, there's an English translation available, and if it, the the word discourage, you know, is preceded by the word strongly. They strongly discourage remote access into reliability critical networks. And so the, you know, A, compliance is essential, B, standards are all over the place, and we need this, you know, to me, we need this this engineering perspective to pervade OT standards, and we need the sense of, of uh, worst case consequence to be more reliably uh, represented so that we can reliably distinguish what really does make sense. It's a different kind of security that you have in a, a toaster factory or a laptop factory than you have in a rail switching system. And there's a third category, which is maybe it's not a toaster factory. Maybe it's a billion dollar toaster factory, in which case, you know, it may not be critical infrastructure, but it's really important to the business because there's a lot of money invested here. Maybe I want to start using some of these reliability engineering approaches, even though I don't have to because of safety, maybe it makes sense to do it business-wise. Yeah, I, I will second that perspective, Andrew. I think when you think about the word critical, I think there's government agencies that define certain sectors as critical. But I know leaders within those critical industries that don't define every process that they have as critical, right? And I think that's a real discussion. And I'm with Andrew. I, I think that there's 
companies that don't fall into a certain category that it's pretty critical for them to to stay afloat and to to stay mm-hmm. safe. And for others, it's not. Uh, it's not as big of an issue. So I, I, again, I, I think that there's a lot of government agencies. I think there's a lot of regulatory bodies. I think there's a lot of very influential players across the regulatory theme that that are driving maybe compliance, maybe alignment. It, it's still, if I'm a betting a betting man, I'm, I'm focused on the uh, I'm focused on the key leaders and getting them to buy in. You know, back to a, a point that Dave and Edward were talking about is this notion of compliance. And I agree with all the different statements, but I have a, a perspective that I just kind of threw up in the air. What if what if there was a compliance mandate that you had to spend a certain amount of time with your kids each week and a certain amount of time with your spouse and you had to take your spouse on a date every single week? Does that mean that if you're compliant with that standard that you're going to have a, a better relationship? No, but it sure does lay the foundation for it. So I'm kind of with, with Edward on the idea that if you're aiming for a compliance state, then then you're probably going to be implementing the controls with a long enough lens that you want to maintain that compliance state, which means that you're focusing not just on the technical controls to say, yep, I got encryption. Yep, I got some sort of inventory. But you're also going to be looking at the policies and the procedures and the people side of it. And I think that's the real question. Compliance doesn't equal security unless you want to be compliant in a continually improving manner every single year. And in that case, I'm an advocate for compliance uh, because it, it positions you to have something, some set of criteria, some bar to reach. Uh, and based on everybody's comments, I think everybody would generally agree. It, absolutely, Ted. I, I absolutely agree. But, you know, I one thing that uh, that Andrew touched on, and, and you, you just touched on that, looking at the actual uh, uh, security framework that you're trying to, to drive for. One, that framework can and compliance can become, um, you know, the driver for your for your budget and driver for your buy-in. <laughs> so to make those incremental year-over-year uh, improvements then becomes a business goal uh, more effectively. But but also, Andrew touched on, you know, the, sometimes it's not applicable. It looks like IT uh, folks trying to do OT stuff. And we find that a lot in the in the OT environment, a lot of IT policies, processes, and frameworks trying to be used. So I use the word, I use the term, the spirit of the standard. Um, so you need to really evaluate what is the standard trying to accomplish, and and can I do that a different way, making it up on an uh, as as uh, as Andrew said. Um, so by by looking at the spirit of the standard, what they're trying to accomplish, like user ID and password, let's say. In a control room, user ID and password goes out the window. You've got 11 people in that room or more that need to see every screen. They can't be logging on and logging off. So how can you meet the spirit of who's on what device and what commands are they entering? A combination of uh, proximity badges, a combination of CCTV, um, you know, whatever other combination to meet what you're trying to accomplish with that with that control. I think that needs to be evaluated on an individual basis. And sometimes in companies, you may have one control room that's different from another control room in the same company. So you may have varying standards based on what the, the process is that you're governing. So eh, those are the kind of, kind of the points I pulled out of those last couple of discussions. Yeah, so I guess for my, obviously not being a technical expert, so a high level kind of summary from me is I think everyone's in agreement then that, you know, 
compliance definitely gets you to security is not enough on its own but you know you're probably gonna have a hard time achieving security without without being compliant um so i think focusing then on how does our choice of tools and techniques how does that affect our ability to manage um risk and how does it affect roi but also value on investment uh looking at different tools and techniques you can employ there Edward, do you want to pick that one up first of all? Or? Sure. Yeah. So I, it goes back to one of my points that I made earlier in looking at your tools. You're one of the most one of the most challenging thing for a new CISO walking into an organization that has a security um, uh, function, IT or OT, it doesn't matter. You're you're going to look at application rationalization as your first task to see what overlap do I have on some of these tools. Um, you'll find that every organization starts buying tools and they have, oh, well, this has this functionality I'm looking for, but it also does these things, but we really didn't buy it for that. We want this functionality. And then they cobble together the functionality as controls, but they're paying for a lot of unused resources. So really strategically thinking through the value you're going to receive out of the tools, is that commensurate to the level of risk I'm willing to accept? In other words, do I need best of breed because of the criticality or do I need good enough and I can save some budget here and apply it elsewhere? So by balancing out your selection of tools, you can one, look at your overall spend and reduce your overall spend and, and financial risk. But also you can look at your performance for security as a holistic uh, goal. And then you can map that out, say, in a bow tie metric so you can see the path of attack, so you can see all the controls you've got and any vacancies or holes that you might need to fill. I would, I would, that's the approach I take on it. What do you guys think? I'll, I'll take a completely different look at it. If, if the question is, you know, tools for cyber risk, um, I would suggest that, uh, you know, insurance is a tool that a lot of people use. And I wanted to point out that the world of OT cyber insurance is changing uh, fairly dramatically uh, ever since about the NotPetya incident in, in 2017. Um, you know, uh, Merck Pharmaceutical uh, uh, had to shut down four plants. They lost $1.4 billion, uh, mostly in product. When you scrub one of those batches, it's expensive. Um, submitted a claim to the insurance agency. The insurance agency, Zurich, uh, contested the com claim, said this was a, a nation-state attack, doesn't count. Uh, the courts disagreed. Zurich appealed. The appeal courts agreed with the uh, the claimant. Zurich paid out, as far as I know, $1.4 billion. That's 10 to the ninth dollars, not millions, billions. Um, the regulator regulates uh, uh, the Lloyds syndicate now no longer... Uh, says it says you're you're not allowed to have insurance policies anymore where cyber damages are covered as part of general damages where cyber liability is covered as part of general liability you have to have separate cyber policies and they're capping these cyber policies at about 200 225 million dollars um so here's the thing uh you know a lot of us say uh you know um i've got a little bit of security and you know, i sprinkle the, the the security fairy dust over the thing and i buy insurance and i'm done um, it's no longer true, uh, at least the Lloyd syndicate and, you know, the rest of Lloyd's is seen as a leader. The rest of the world tends to look to Lloyd's and what they do today. You know, the, the rest of the world's going to do in five years. Um, the Lloyd syndicate has said the risk is too great, uh, especially on the OT side. They are reducing what they're willing to pay out. They are reducing what they're willing to cover, at least silently. They are, um, 
the the questionnaire, the Lloyd's questionnaire has has you know when when you do a uh, when you apply for a policy, uh, the cybersecurity questionnaire has increased from about one page to I think more than four pages, pushing five pages of questions. <laughs> Your answers are going to be much more detailed, and they're starting to ask questions. I've seen you know I see uh, uh, folks from from the insurance industry on these uh, CIE calls. They're starting. They're showing a real interest in engineering grade mitigations for cyber risk. Um, they're already asking questions about network engineering and unidirectional gateways as part of their existing questionnaire. Um, and so, you know, the I think a couple of bottom lines. One is that the threat environment is changing dramatically. The insurance agency, uh, insurance industry is is uh, is recognizing this and is changing as well. Uh, insurance is a tool for certain kinds of risks. You cannot use insurance to insure society. You know, if if uh, a power company gets hacked and the lights go out all over the northeast United States again, and the uh, you know the CEO comes on and on the, uh, the the fifth day and says you know we're very sorry mea culpa you know this was our fault, but you know I want you as a population to rest assured that this company throughout this entire disaster this company has not lost one red cent because we have insurance he would be lynched insurance is the wrong answer for certain kinds of risks. And where it is the right answer, it's changing dramatically. Um, the insurance companies are no longer willing to accept certain kinds of risks on the OT side. Um, is it wise for us as businesses to accept those risks? I don't think so. These people are experts on risk. Um, we need to do more to reduce the risk, not just hand it off. Thanks for that insight, Andrew. And Ted, have you got any thoughts specifically on the the tools and techniques that the companies can employ and how that affects ROI or value of investment? Yeah, I mean, there is a very, I think that folks in security a lot of time can be technical in nature, data-oriented folks by nature. I think they can be uh, early adopters by nature. So there is a trend to deploy technical solutions first. Um, and there's an argument for it. What I think is a more process and people approach will actually create larger ROIs long-term. And that's not the fun stuff to, to, to put in place. Nobody wants to write policies and they go train those policies and then audit those policies. It's, it's much harder to decentralize cybersecurity practices than it is to just plug up potential vulnerabilities. So I, I think that the service companies, the vendors, the OEMs, we all have a, a charge to develop the most innovative solutions for that particular control set. But when you take a look at standards, when you take a look at all the controls of those standards, the, the hefty amount of controls that exist in any framework or standard are on the people in the process side. And the minority of those controls are on the technical side. So I think, I think we underinvest in people in process and we overinvest in technical. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I'm, I think the opposite argument is that there are some technical gaps and holes that are disastrous if if exacerbated or or, or taken advantage of. And so it's really it, it is a very important component to to tie in some technical solutions first. So I think it's it really comes back to uh, the the man in the arena. The person who is actually looking at all of the different controls, all of the budget, the business outcomes, and it rests upon them to say, "This is where we're going to put our our our, our program next. This is what our 
project roadmap for the next 12 months is going to be. Uh, so I could argue honestly both sides, but I can't point to a specific uh, you know, technical solution that I think is going to be a cure-all. I think it is a it is a web of control closure. Uh, it is a web of mitigated controls. It is a web of insurance on top of that. It is a web of of uh, compensating controls. And I, and I think the average security and risk management leader would agree. Yeah, I agree with you, Ted. And before I get hate mail, I wanted to go back to what I said earlier about measuring the ROI holistically as opposed to the individual technology components. I meant as you present to the board or the executive leadership. As a CISO, you need to look at the individual investments uh, for obvious reasons to see if you're getting value back from the tools. But in spreading out your tools across the enterprise, um, I think it's important to look for compatibility with your IT side as well as your OT side and how and have a strategy for how am I going to incorporate that in the big picture risk and value discussion um, to the organization at the business level. That's, that's a, sorry, had a phone call come in. <laughs> no, no problem. And so turning attention back to um, insurance that it's been a topic well, it's you know it's a topic that's always there's always uh, in the news at the moment, and we've had several podcasts on it. In fact, one of my last ones was with a um, with an OT company that are looking to help underwriters um, provide cyber insurance through kind of compiling the data and helping them kind of quantify risk. How how do you think you know cyber insurance could look in the future? And specifically focused on Andrew, something you've referenced a couple of times or a number of times in the cyber reformed engineering strategy. Looking at the framework or looking at some of the recommendations they put out, how could that be useful or applicable in helping underwriters and insurers? You know, providing insurance because if security is becoming sort of baked into controls from the get-go, rather than security being an add-on, as we're often seeing. How could that change and make it kind of more uh, more appealing for underwriters to provide insurance? Well, well I think the first you, one. Go ahead, Ed. Go, go ahead, Ted. Go ahead, Ted. I, I, well, I mean, I think it's tough. I think there's more than enough content out there. There's some real leaders in the industry that that think cyber insurance is broken, right? Is it? Uh, you know, there's. I'm, I'm. I'm not stating that. I'm saying that I, that it's challenging for the underwriters. It's challenging for the brokers. It's challenging for the service companies and the product companies to tie into the brokers and the underwriters to effectively establish a base case of maturity or compliance that then drives a quote. Where I think the biggest challenge is, we could probably tie all cyber insurance challenges today, both on the receiving side and the issuing side, to maybe a, 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 a disparate syntax across what I can see is four or five different organizations. Somebody's got to sell it. Somebody's got insurance. Somebody's got to, to verify it. Somebody's got to ask for it. I think the the larger challenge is the the long term future of how does a cyber claim actually get paid out when it may have been two years since that premium was paid or that premium was established. So I think. The real challenge is in the alignment between not just the technology, but the service and the product companies that might get used by the provider to validate and verify that certain measures were were taken along the way. And that that's an auditing function. So um, I think it's a it's a real web of challenges. And to be truthful, I very rarely say this as a futurist, but I, I don't know how in the world 
uh, it, it's all gonna gonna work out. I think the most important thing is you have to have some. I think it's granular at the localized level. You have one cyber insurance provider with one cyber broker with one series of tech companies and service companies that collectively operate on a charter. And for that given number of customers that they serve, they have a very composed manner in which they evaluate price and evaluate cyber risks. And I think that it can't be done nationally. I think you're going to find a more localized approach uh to insurance and risk mitigation that's that's my my perspective yeah let me let me jump in with just a few more words um the uh a a, a very common you know less about the future but just about the present tense of insurance uh, a great many organizations um make the mistake of answering these questionnaires, these due, due care, due diligence questionnaires that determine the cost of your policy because the insurance company is evaluating what kind of risk you pose. They fill up the questionnaires in such a way so as to, re, to minimize the cost of buying the policy. And they do not fill out the questionnaires in such a way as to maximize the likelihood of a payout from the insurance company if there is a uh, an event. What's the difference? You minimize your risk or your your policy cost by saying I'm doing X and Y and Z and I don't have any of that risk and you know I don't do remote access into my OT systems and I have multi-factor everywhere, and then and the insurance company basically takes your information at face value, calculates the policy, you buy the the, the policy and four years from now you submit a claim. When you submit a material claim, they're going to come back and say that's a you know hundred million dollar claim you just submitted. Let's see if what you said in your answer to the policy questionnaire is true. And if they find out that it was true on the day that you uh, filled out the questionnaire, but then you let it slide, you put the policy manual on the shelf and it's gathering dust and you're not doing compliance anymore, um, you're no longer protected the way you assured the insurance company you're going to be protect protected. You're not going to get that claim. And so you've got to be really careful with insurance um, you know, uh, uh, a second thing sort of in terms of the future, historically, insurance companies were leaders in safety. Um, they were the ones that uh, led the development of the first uh, electrical safety standards when electricity was getting started 150, 200 years ago. Um, they are, have not taken that active a role in the cybersecurity uh, for OT space yet. Uh, but they're looking at it because there's a lot of standards out there, a lot of really confusing standards. We've talked about that, the whole spectrum. A lot of them are very IT-centric. They don't really work. It's a very confused space. But I think as the space uh, you know, solidifies and we start seeing these engineering-grade mitigations on the OT side, um, I think we're going to start seeing insurance companies uh, taking much clearer stances uh, as to what they're going to cover and what they're not and what kind of risk they regard as unacceptable. And, you know, I have to wonder if an insurance expert regards a risk as unacceptable, should the rest of us be accepting that risk? Um, and working with vendors. I mean, I was talking to a customer just yesterday saying, uh, look, we have, uh, we buy these black boxes, uh, a box that manages a turbine, a box that manages a, a, a very large pump or a centrifuge. Um, and we don't know. I mean, the vendor does not let us show us what's inside the box. Are there 
engineering grade mitigations inside the box for safety conditions? We don't know. For reliability interruptions, we don't know. We're not allowed to look under the hood. We have to count on, you know, what whatever the vendor's marketing is telling us. I'm guessing that there's going to be a, a material push from insurance from a lot of people to push back on practices like this to increase transparency so that the insurance business, so that all of us understand our risk posture much better than we do now. Great. And Edward, did you have any kind of anything to, to add to that at all or are you happy? No, I think, you know, I, I made my point earlier. It's really all about visibility and how 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 uh, complete your your vision is of your security program. I think that's that's what really resonates important to me making sure you know all the, you can see all your assets, you know what you're protecting, you can dice it up by by risk category, you can show uh, the value back to the overall security uh, uh, program. Those are the things that I, I'm concerned about in, in trying to measure ROI and risk across your enterprise. Perfect. Thank you. So I think just conscious of time, we've been going going for an hour or so here and we've covered, covered a lot of ground. I guess um you know it's been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation from my side now i wanted to to invite each of each of the guests here are there any kind of closing thoughts any of you had anything that you know i haven't asked anything you wanted to kind of bring up that hasn't yet been mentioned on this podcast any closing thoughts uh, sure this is andrew um i will uh, suggest that people who are interested might want to go to the waterfall website and download our latest threat report um the we're looking at numbers of ot incidents deliberate attacks that caused physical consequences uh, you know, in the industries that we track, which it tends to be heavy industry and manufacturing. Um, and a lot of people don't haven't looked at the numbers and they don't realize that in about 2020, there was a state change in the threat environment. The previous decade, you know, 2010 through 19, attacks with physical consequences were largely theoretical. Governments were worried. Uh, forward-looking organizations were worried. Everybody else was going, it's not happening. There were, we're talking ones and twos and fours per year. Since 2020, we're seeing this class of attack uh, more than double every year. You know, if this kind of growth continues, we're going to see something like, uh, you know, 4,500 or 5,000 attacks impairing 15 or 20,000 sites by, uh, you know, 2027, 2028, you know, five years out. Um, the threat environment has changed fundamentally. Um, and I think, you know, this is part of why we see a whole bunch of standards and regulations, in, you know, popping out of the woodwork in the last 18 months, because governments have much more data than I do. And they're seeing this too. So, you know, I think the, the message is um, in the world of OT security, the world has changed. And it's going to continue changing fairly dramatically over the next five years as the threat environment deteriorates dramatically, markedly. Um, there are solutions, but we're going to need, all of us are going to need much more powerful tools and approaches to OT cybersecurity or to you know managing OT cyber risk, whether we're using security techniques or engineering techniques. We're going to need much more powerful approaches in the next five years than we have needed in the past decade. Thank you, Andrew. And Ted, have you got any closing thoughts? Yeah, Andrew, I'd love to to see when when that goes live. So uh, I'd love to send it, send us all an email or a, a LinkedIn update. We'll we'll take a look at it. That's very interesting. Yeah, for me, mm -hmm. if if any of the folks listening to this podcast enjoy kind of the 
the non-technical strategic side of cybersecurity, I invite you to check out my business of cyber series. We do a, a, a discussion every week about something aligned with what we're talking about here. So thanks for the opportunity, Dave. Really enjoyed it, Andrew and Edward, and uh, and uh, y'all go have a great weekend. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. And last but certainly not least, Edward, yourself, any closing thoughts? Absolutely, Ted. It was great, uh, great uh, being on the podcast with you, Andrew, you as well. I think, you know, if, if I wanted to give one takeaway, um, check out your asset visibility. If you can't see all your assets on OT, give give us a call, Hexagon, um, because we uh, we look deep into the OT network differently. We're not sniffing the wire like some of our perceived competition. We're actually collecting configuration files. So I think it's it's, it's worth a look. So that's that's my last pitch. Perfect. Great, great being with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, just to conclude. Massive thank you to, to to each and every one of you for contributing today. It's been a very interesting and informative uh, discussion. I'm sure it's going to provide a lot of value to uh, to listeners. So thank you very much for your contribution, guys.